Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Blessed to be here today with my mentor, my friend, Blaine Bartlett, blainebartlett.com. How are you, Blaine? I could not be better. I was just telling Raluca, it was just absolutely beautiful up here on the island today. And I've been uh, you know, kind of hitting uh, on all cylinders here in the last couple of days. Uh, did some great podcasts, Some uh, did a webinar yesterday, and it was Rousing success. We got all kinds of stuff going on. Well, that's great to hear. I will tell you, I think there was a geographic swap between Seattle and Southern California because it looks like Seattle here. We are cold and wet and uh, it's almost June. So I don't know what's going <laughs> on, but we're, we're happy to have it. I'm happy that you got our weather. At least it's with someone that I love. Um, but we're here to talk about winning, Blaine, and we brought on an expert at winning. Lee Benson's in the house, CEO and founder of Execute to Win, ETW.com. That's not an easy domain to get. Welcome to Office Hours, Lee. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, David. You know, I've been wanting to ask you this question uh, about something I think uh, is interesting when we talk about winning. Uh, our perspective of winning changes uh, through the lessons that we learn. So, I'd love to understand your philosophy of winning. What does it mean to win? Well, in the context of a for-profit or nonprofit organization, it's continually increasing the value of those organizations over time. It could be profitability or cash flow, or it could be impact. And there's a whole lot that goes into that. It's not just the number and profit. It's the culture. It's how people feel. It's the impact on the communities that you engage with. But I would say in the context of organizational winning, uh, which is, I think, what this is about, it's continually, consistently increasing the value of the organizations over time and accelerating it when you do the right work. Yeah, that's it's very consistent with a, an old quote that uh, Earl Nightingale uh, offered up one time when he was asked, how do you define success? And he said, it's the worthy pursuit or, or the pursuit of a worthy ideal, you know, mm -hmm. the continual of a worthy ideal and <clears throat> the idea of you know a large part of what you do uh at execute to win is foster and i'm going to use the word foster here not because mm -hmm. it's distinct create but foster the opportunity for organizations to come into alignment around a worthy ideal is, is that a good uh, way of kind of capturing that um yeah, in a way and i earl nightingale incredible the strangest secret best recording ever yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I bet I've given raising ourselves, guys. Let's be careful of that, of that away. Um, it's about continually creating value. If you were to ask the question of it to an individual, what's your definition of success or what does winning look like? And for me, it's ever growing personal fulfillment by creating win win value in the world. Like I feel the best, and I think most people feel the absolute best when they're doing something in a win win way, and then they continually increase the level of what's going on there. That's where self-esteem come from, comes from, uh, personal fulfillment grows. So if I had a most important number for myself as an individual, it would be the internal fulfillment quotient and however you want to measure that. And I think that could be slightly different for everyone. And beyond that, we have to talk about individual communities. And a lot of what you do is winning within the context of communities and yet the size, scope, scale of the target or size of the targetable market or community 
has expanded exponentially. How has uh, winning within the context of community impacted what you do as well? Yeah, it drives everything that I do. So our whole purpose is strengthening communities by improving workplace culture. And what I realized I was, as I was building one of my aerospace companies from three employees to over 500, creating the rules of engagement, the system everybody operated in um, caused them to get amazing results, um, create unbelievable value. And then I, over time, we never had to uh, actually, we, we never had a leader quit on their own. We had to move a few to the side as we outgrew them. Never won. And I, you know, I don't know any company that can really say that. And then I noticed every weekend there's 15 or 20 events everybody's invited to that the employees are just spontaneously putting on. Um, and, and I had uh, over time dozens of spouses um, tell me unsolicited, my husband or wife is a better person to live with after less than a year of working at your company. What are you guys doing down there? Right. Oh my gosh. I mean, the, what, the value creation, the self-esteem that we created in this culture, this way of doing things permeated out into the families and it goes out into the communities that we engage with. And very selfishly, in a win-win way, I want to live in a world that's amazing. So the more people that do this, the more organizations that do it, it creates a better world for all of us instead of what may be a dystopian future that we're heading towards. So I'm going to try to stop that. It's funny, Blaine, I got to just tell you, because Blaine's one of the yeah. world's best coaches in, in the world. And I send my people to him. I have him coach me. And one of the, I think, uh, proofs that he's one of the best is he has my wife and I know one of the other employees of mine, their wives are always calling him saying, I don't know what you're doing, but uh, you know, you got to keep on coaching him because he's so much easier to live with. Um, I also want to point out one more thing. Uh, Cause I always love to add a little bit of color. I make this more a sports uh, media company as we have office hours for business. But I, I have a young lady that commented in there and her name's Serafina. She's 19 years old. And I poached her from San Diego State Entrepreneur Program because as I'm walking to a speech, she tells me, I listen to Bob Proctor every day. And she's only 19 years old. And I immediately said to her, you're hired. She goes, well, you don't even know what I do. I go, I do not care. But if any 19-year-old takes their time to listen to Bob Proctor. So then she comments in here, this is classic. She's 19. And she says, yes, love Earl Nightingale. Just listen to him say that on his tape, The Strangest Secret. And I'm thinking, what 19-year-old at San Diego State University is listening? And she's a gorgeous, wonderful girl with so much athletic. And I'm thinking, who has the time? Let alone, why are you choosing this instead of TikTok? But good for you, Serafina. Keep leading the way. There's a lot of riches in those niches and keep reading what inspires you. And I had to point that out because I'm sure it made both of your day as well as mine that there's some 19 years old out there still keeping our mentors alive. Love it. <laughs> yeah. And Serafina, I know you're listening here. Uh, my granddaughter is coming to San Diego State uh, next year. She's, she's just decided on there. So I want to get the two of you introduced. She is brilliant and you're going to love her and she's going to love you. So We'll make Perfect. that happen. Okay. Thank you. Now, All right, Blaine, you're up now. BlaineBartlett.com. Yeah. It's your turn. <laughs> this book over my shoulder, Dave and I uh, co-authored Compassionate Capitalism. And I had Gary Ridge, uh, who was the CEO at the uh, WD-40 uh, for a number of years. He just recently retired. Um, the idea of compassionate capitalism, taking care of people. And this is, you know, this is what you're doing. You take care of people and it's good business. 
I mean, it's just good business. Can mm. you talk about some of the organizations that you've actually influenced and touched, you know, with, uh, 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 let's see here, um, you know, not just execute to win, but in the work that you've done, I know you, you, you partnered with Jack Welsh. I'm assuming that Larry Bossidy kind of came into the conversation at some point in time because execution was his, his whole thing. What have you seen that could be identified in some way, shape, or form as compassionate capitalism, where people are paying attention to connection and honoring connection? Now, that's kind of a big yeah, scope it's, question. It's a, it, it's a big question, and I always found it fascinating that more companies don't do this kind of stuff. And so the experience for every internal team member, wildly important. Uh, we want them to learn how to create value, build on that. Um, have elevated self-esteem, have a voice, work for leaders that really care about them. And in one of my companies, I even put in a 10,000 square foot gym with full-time functional movement trainers, Monday through Saturday, gave the employees extra money for training two days a week if they did that. And if they brought their family members even more. And it was an expensive program. We had out of plus, you know, 500 plus people, uh, we had over 360 that were taking advantage of it. But because we did that and so many other things, the net effect was millions of dollars more in profit, which we shared a big percentage of that with all the employees. So it's a whole package. When you're creating value, it's not, like I said earlier, it's not the number. It's creating value for every single stakeholder, your team members, your customers, the communities, you know, all of it going forward. So I agree with you and what you're talking about. And by the way, Ram Sharan is a, is a friend of mine. We're actually talking about co-authoring a book right now. And, yeah. and I get all, all of that. And I don't know why more don't. They just see it as an expense. It's almost like they're thinking um, cost control most of the time and not investment in the best net return one to three years down the road. But it's, yeah. it's, it's the whole thing. It's the, it's, yeah. it's the whole package. Yeah. And Leah, I'll tell you, if you're thinking about co-authoring a book, there's no one better to co-author a book with than Blaine Bartlett because he's an absolute genius and he does all the work and gives you all the credit. So I can't think of a, a better person to co-author a book with and just want to publicly thank Blaine for doing all the work and giving me all the credit. So you're amazing, Blaine. Uh, <laughs> to the side again. Uh, but, you know, looking at the people that you do impact, um, it's an interesting balance to help people at every level and every stage. Mm -hmm. And all of us have been blessed to reach the stage of impacting some of the world's greatest leaders, uh, capital leaders, as well as thought leaders. Um, but yet it seems to me that you still have a connection to and a desire uh, to plant seeds, as Dennis Waitley stated, under trees that you never sit under, that you're still heavily involved in really looking at all members of community and especially those up and coming, not just the biggest names in business. Uh, what are some of the things that you do to balance the impact that you're having from some of the biggest names in business and thought le leadership mm -hmm. to just the people like Serafina uh, that need some seeds and need some help as well. Yeah, my philosophy is um, develop appropriately everybody all the time that you come in contract, contact with. Mm -hmm. And I, I run CEO uh, groups, mastermind groups. We limit it to eight. We call it Execute. And it's for high growth uh, CEOs. The results are fantastic. It really solves for a lot of the challenges that most of the popular groups have out there. 
And now I'm starting the first group in July of junior um, CEOs. These are kids coming out of high school that already have traction. And my goal is with hundreds of members in these different groups at the senior level, I want every one of them within a couple of years running their own group of, of kids coming out of high school that already have traction. So I, that, that's my deal. Uh, develop everybody appropriately all the time. And that'll make a dent in the world. And you develop the right person, they will change the world. So you never know what seed's going to grow into this giant sequoia redwood <laughs> you know, <laughs> world. Yeah, I love that image. I love that image. Yeah. Lee, you work with hundreds of leadership teams, companies ranging from four employees to over 4,000. So you walk the walk and talk the talk. And uh, it takes entrepreneurs and leaders like yourself in order to provide opportunity for those people who I think are changing and impacting the world the most. Uh, if anyone wants to learn about how to execute to win, Lee Benson is your guy, CEO and founder of execute to win etw.com next time. How that pain, uh, but more importantly, come back and join us. I'm sure you have more pearls of wisdom to share with our community. And we certainly appreciate you taking the time to stop by. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. you Great bet. interview. Have you back. All right. We're rocking and rolling, Blaine. Here on hey. Office Hours, I got the great Blaine Bartlett with me. We're going to bring our next guest on. Giovanna is waiting in the wing. Giovanna Voinovich, Senior Director of Nomad Capitalist. So we're right back on track of the Compassionate Capitalist. Nomadcapitalist.com. The world's leading offshore consulting firm and having a great impact as well. Uh, welcome, Giovanna. Thank you, great being with you. You know, the business of offshore has changed dramatically. Uh, I was one of the first, I had an outsourced development team in Calcutta, India of all places uh, in the 90s. And everyone thought I was insane uh, to leverage uh, a great intelligence uh, community out there that wasn't available back then in the United States. And I was tired of poaching juniors out of Cal Poly SLO uh, to pay them far too much uh, to quit school and come engineer for me. And the guilt still resonates uh, as I had to go back to work from making $250,000 to 30,000 when the bubble burst uh, in the 90s as well. Uh, but I was hoping you could give us a little historical uh, analysis of offshore uh, development because it's changed a lot. The locations, uh, the quality, the communication have all changed throughout the years over the last 25 or 30 years. Yeah, definitely. I mean, as I said, it did change a lot over, especially at least a couple of years. I think in most of the countries, everything offshore has a very negative connotation and people do perceive that as something very negative, potentially something very illegal. Uh, but uh, that's definitely nowadays not a case. I think everyone had those inherently, uh, at that moment, right, uh, perception of going offshore, whether for banking or some other things where you can put you know, uh, your money in a sack and go to Cayman Islands, open a bank account. No one would know you're good to go. Uh, and, you know, uh, I grew up with a lot of Hollywood movies that were portraying uh, that picture. So, you know, it, it's very, 
very inherently uh, kind of a bad thing. You don't do it um, and so on. But that's no longer a case. And uh, nowadays we see more and more people realizing that uh, that's not illegal. That doesn't going offshore doesn't mean uh, a tax evasion. You can really in most of the cases, just get benefits. So whether that is for from you know the asset diversification, fund diversification, um, you know different companies and benefit from um, taxes in different areas of the world, or as you did, um, you know sourcing people in different countries uh, who might not just be uh, you know cheaper for what you're looking for, but in many cases way better for uh, what you need, but also um, something that we do very often and that is becoming a very big trend nowadays, and I would say especially after after pandemic, uh, are second passports or more and more people are looking to either relocate or just have like a second or third passport kind of as a plan B. So as I said, this is no like perception of going offshore really changed over last couple of years uh, specifically but you know um since 2008 seven or eight you know hiding money in cayman were no longer possible um there is a lot of rules imposed um you know fatca for 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 us or crs for everyone else so banks are communicating um you know country uh, governments are communicating who is a tax resident there and uh, you know banks want to see the proof so it really is becoming way more regulated obviously uh we're facing now that global minimum taxes that everyone is talking about trying to implement and we see a lot of developments in europe happening over that so with that it will be also increasingly uh harder to benefit from um this kind of I would say offshore companies and uh, legal ways to reduce your taxes. Yeah. So just a quick clarification question, and then I've got a question following that. <laughs> Two questions <laughs> for the price of one. For the price of one here. Is most of your clientele US-based or North America-based? Canada, yeah. uh, Canada, US. Yeah. No? Uh, 60% or, or yeah. of our clients are US. Yeah. Uh, and then Canada, Australia. UK, so very westernized countries, let's say, um, who are looking to, to for either, as I said, a place to live and in some other locations, or maybe something that we called plan B, like a backup option, if things yeah. go somewhere that they have an ability to, to move around. Good. So, so the second part of that question is, it just kind of you know, gave me a sense of who the demographic is that you're targeting here um, and, and working with. Uh, what changes when you start working with somebody out of the North America, Western, yeah, Western yeah, economic domain? What changes for you as a consulting agent to help these uh, entrepreneurs actually achieve what it is that you're uh, you know, positioning for them in terms of freedom, in terms of global access, that sort of thing? Is there anything fundamental that changes in the way that you work with other nationals other than uh, these uh, Western North American uh, economic <laughs> entrepreneurs? Yeah, well, I mean, our approach towards them is always the same. It doesn't matter kind yeah. of in which country uh, they are 
living or um, they are they are coming from where they are going. So those are we're always trying to to be very coherent with that one. Uh, but it is very very interesting from my perspective to look how uh, perception of our clients change when they are moving from one to another country um, and, you know, either or even in some cases just getting access to more options, as I said, staying in their home country, but just getting, um, you know, either offshore companies or bank accounts and how they're getting used to use those things um, or, you know, bottom line living in, in some other place. I think our perception does not change, but there does. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And where, where are the best places now? So as people look at plan B or tax benefit, uh, I would assume if there's a plan B, it's because of the ease of getting a second passport or a residency comparatively to tax benefit. Those would be two different critical life or business issues that present themselves. Where are the best locations for the ease and where's the best uh, locations today for tax benefit? Uh, yeah, well, to answer kind of correctly to that question, we always go to what your goals are. So for someone who, you know, maybe is coming from the U.S., uh, does want to um, live to, the, the main goal is to reduce taxes in any way, shape, shape or form. Um, obviously, we're now look, then looking into uh, tax-free places, that might be UAE, that might be Monaco, that might be some other locations that might have additional taxes and that maybe match lifestyle. Um, I don't know. Portugal is very interesting. A lot of U.S. expats are, are, are in Portugal. Um, so South America is now becoming really um, really uh, a hub for, for folks from U.S. Um, Mexico was during COVID. So um, obviously, like just looking at what what the goal is, if someone might come and say, yeah, I want my ultimate goal is access to better health care. So that's something that I'm very concerned about um, in the future. I want to have access to best health care possible. Um, so we would, in the, those cases, look into you know, what are the preconditions in case what, what we need to have in that country. Um, and obviously, people do like to bring weather, like they want to be in a nice weather, so you don't send them in Sweden uh, or Finland. Um, so in some nice places. And obviously, they might come and say, yeah, I want nice healthcare and a good ed education for, for my kids or grandkids um, and reduce taxes, which might be completely different country. So again, based on based on that, it is where we are making our recommendations. Um, so if we're speaking about second passports, the too broad, um, kind of the easiest way, um, and in most of the cases, the fastest way to to obtain couple are obtaining citizenships from a couple Caribbean countries uh, that uh, <clears throat> do provide basically <clears throat> apologies for a donation or real estate purchase uh, to get a passport. So, you know, give or take, it is a six to eight months process and you have a very solid second passport in your hand. Um, some other countries do not have that option, but you can get it 
couple of years down the road. So if you live in Portugal uh, for six years, you can get, um, or you don't necessarily have to live full time, but spend some time there, you can get it down the road. So Portugal is six, let's say a lot of people nowadays like <clears throat> like uh, uh, Argentina or um, Paraguay, that, that is becoming a big hub for, for a lot of actual digital nomads. So that, that is really three to five years citizenship, so a bit more faster. Um, and something that is really my personally favorite and that a lot of U.S. Uh, citizens do qualify for, unfortunately not many people know, is um, citizenship through ancestry. So, um, I mean, 75% of um, U.S. population have up to third um, generation of, a, are up to third generation of a descent. So basically, pretty much a, a lot of them do qualify for a second passport, again, mostly Europe or um, uh, South America that allow multiple uh, generations. So, you know, you put some time in that. Um, obviously, there is a whole shebang with obtaining the documents and tracing uh, in European churches, some birth certificates and things like that. But really, in you know a year to year and a half, you get a really good citizenship in hands without, without knowing the language, without stepping a foot if you do not want to. Obviously, if you do, you can still live there. You can your kids can benefit from education system and so on. But you don't have to. You just can just have it in case things go sour, right? So there are different ways. As I said, my personally favorite is CBD because so citizenship by descent. Sorry, because so many people do qualify and not many people know. So what I like to say is that. You know, this going offshore world is really no longer um, and just an opportunity for, you know, very high earners or people with uh, billions of dollars. So nowadays everyone can um, get the benefits of that lifestyle. That's great. Amazing. That's well, fascinating. Yeah, that really is. I'll see you in Trinidad, David. All right. We got it, my friend. Well, my... Uh, this lineage is Ukraine, so I'm not going to go ahead and get citizenship there right now. But I'll think about it later on when this whole thing blows over. Uh, Giovanna, there's so many great opportunities that exist by utilizing uh, the nomad capitalist approach. And we all need uh, mentors that can give us directions on how to get there. And if you're interested in offshore engagement, whether it's for uh, healthcare globalization of citizenship, liberties, freedoms, whatever it may be. And of course, tax benefit and investment. Uh, Nomad capitalists have helped over 2000 uh, high net worth individuals go offshore. And even now, those that may not even be high net wealth through other ways of getting citizenship. Giovanna, thanks so much uh, again for everything that you do, giving options, opportunities, touches of favor to people around the world. We appreciate you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. We're rocking and rolling here today. It's always nice to see everybody in the house. It's time to max out. We got our next friend here. Max Volmer is here. COO of Remita Management, CEO of Volmer Real Estate Investments. 
Welcome to Office Hours. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having well, me. I was, I was excited, to uh, Max, to have you. Uh, you know, I have a close space in my heart for athletes uh, that take what they've learned on the field uh, and apply them <laughs> off the field. And I was blessed to be with two great entrepreneurs uh, who are still top of their game, Austin Eckler and Michael Chandler. Um, and I'm blessed to coach both of those young athletes uh, in the entrepreneurial side of things. And I find it such a joy when you have someone who uh, has characteristics from playing or being a competitive athlete, and they're so much easier to coach, number one, because they're used to coaching. Uh, and I get frustrated all the time because I get so many world-class athletes that get out into the real uh, business world and I'll say, hey, you really should get a business coach. Let me introduce you to Blaine Bartlett. And they're like, what do I need a coach for? And I was like, dude, you've had a coach since you were five. You know, and imagine if you didn't have a coach, a golf coach or a swing coach or a tennis coach. You know, I do a lot with Rick Macy. You know, you could ask Serena and Venus Williams. Imagine if you didn't have Rick Macy. Right. And now you're going to go step into a new court, uh, the court of business, real estate, finance, insurance, whatever it may be. You don't think you need a coach. Why do you think it is, Max, that so many athletes like yourself, or I should say, unlike yourself, don't see the benefit of a coach uh, when they get into business? You know, I think it's just the, the stereotype that's that's out there, right, with in sports, there's no question asked, right? We see most of the most successful people. I mean, nobody just is going to be a world-class athlete without a coach, right? There's always a massive team of nutritionists, physiotherapists, and coaches out there. In, in business, I think a lot of the time, some of these most successful stories don't really mention their mentorships, but everyone is trying to be in the show light and just trying to be the star. But ultimately, um, you know, when you go back into their actual stories, you, you, you read some of their bios and actually understand how they got successful, right? Nobody just gets there overnight. There's always mentors, uh, partnerships, you know, coaches, anything along the way to help you. And I think it's, it's almost selfish believing these days that you will get to the top in your industry, to your niche without mentorship, right? It, it, I mean, yes, there's, there's ways you can get there, but I think it's just in our time frame right now with everything being digital, you just need to take advantage of the knowledge that's out there and compromise the time that it takes you to succeed and learn from other people's failures so you don't have to do the same failures again and you just reapply that knowledge and the expertise from somebody else to help you get to where you want to be quicker. I mean, it's the way how we got um, successful quickly is just by surrounding us with the right people. I always tell everyone our net worth is our network, right? The people that, that we know. I've seen you on, on stage with a Jeff, Jeff Hoffman. He's a good friend of ours, right? These are the people that you have to surround yourself. I mean, amazing minds. Every time I talk to him, it's, I feel this, I've learned so much, right? Because there's so much wisdom. And and it's just amazing, like having these, these people in your pipeline that you can call and be like, hey, you know, I'm doing this. What do you think? Do you think I should approach it or should do something different. Just that that mentorship and coaching is just super, super valuable. And uh, um, I think more and more people realize that these days too, that they get there quicker by just having, it's an investment. You're investing in coaching. It's not an expense. It's an investment in your, in your education. And that will always have a 10x return um, because the investment in yourself is the most important investment you can do these days. So, and I could not agree with you more. <laughs> I don't have anything to add to that. <laughs> I do have a question here, though, and it has to do with the niche that I find that you are actually occupying in your real estate uh, 
side of, of, of your life here. Raw land. You know, you specialize in raw land, bare land. Mm-hmm. How did you get there? Because people look at, and, you know, I've got a vacant lot next to me that I just bought. Um, you know, but it, it's, it's sat, sat vacant for, I've been here for 24 years. It sat vacant for 24 years and I, I curated it and took care of it. But why, why raw, raw land? What's, what's the, the value that you saw there that others weren't seeing such that that's the niche that you decided to play in? That's a good question. So we, we focus on many things. We have started at raw land because when we started, there was just a shortage of housing and people were moving out of the bigger cities into the suburban areas. So what we did, we followed the immigration movements. We saw, you know, people going into the suburban areas and ultimately there was not much housing available, but there was still land available. So people went to purchase land, we flipped land to developers. Our goal back then was always going into the ground up construction because I really enjoyed that piece of real estate. I think it has a huge legacy component to it and I was really inspired on it. So I knew if I understand the game on how to find land, how to understand the zoning, how to understand the future land use, how to understand the rezoning of cities while they're growing. I mean, cities are also basically big businesses, right? They make the decisions on how they are adjusting the zoning processes. So we've used all that knowledge, you know, along the way, obviously did fix and flips, focus on that rental acquisition and then apartment syndications to now really get specialized again into we initially planned and it's grown up construction. We're building a lot of um, townhomes here in St. Pete and Sarasota. We're building small, medium-sized apartments. Um, but again, because we are so heavily invested in studying the city's, you know, five and 10-year growth plans and, and seeing like, you know, where can we buy real estate right now, knowing that they're going to change the zoning the next year and they're going to tear down the building and build six townhomes, so build a multifamily, right? So it kind of all played in there. And I really enjoy, I really enjoy new construction um, of, you know, townhomes and multifamily because I, I always tell myself, you know, in 10 years or what, 15 years, my kids, I can drive by and say, hey, we built this. But a fix and flip in 10 years might not look anywhere close how you left it. But a new construction of the apartment building is still going to look pretty decent by the time you drive by. And it's just, for me, it's a legacy. You're helping increase, you know, build the city, helping pretty much build and improve the city. Uh, so you have a huge impact to it. And that's what I really love. And it's how we started with Lane because we knew if you understand that game, you can reapply it into a more you know, specific niche later on. And obviously mentoring and coaching has played an important role in that, as well as uh, being an athlete and having a desire that you must be what you can be, a spirit of excellence. Um, but a lot of people look over credibility. And there's many characteristics uh, that attribute, especially in real estate or insurance or other areas uh, where the stigma of the lack of credibility uh, stands out. And we know as lawyers or insurance or financial fiduciaries, there's always bad uh, eggs and bad case studies that uh, accelerate or amplify the negativity that exists in any industry. But your reputation is one based off of that spirit of excellence but also about integrity and credibility. Uh, what are some of the things that you advise or coach or mentor young real estate professionals that, as I always say, you know, really good people that get desperate do bad things? How do you counteract uh, in a down market, in a challenging competitive industry to maintain your intre- integrity and credibility throughout the process of building your career like you have with hundreds of doors uh, to keep that credibility and maintain your integrity. 
Yeah, what I what I always tell people is the best deals that I want to see actually don't do, right? Because right now we're seeing a lot of. You can always look at a deal like two or three times in different perspectives and, and you know change things to make it look good or like you know have some future assumptions. What if oh you know what if this happens? Well then the deal makes a lot of sense and especially right now with the market in many many areas suburban markets within the United States it's not necessarily as attractive. Interest rates are high, cash flow is really slim. A lot of the equity is, you know, not really there as it has been in the last couple of years. The best deals are the ones you don't do. Like being patient for another three, four months and then really, you know, looking at deals over and over and over again until you find the one that makes the most sense. That's where I, you know, see myself sometimes when I have a deal and like, but what if it would just work? It's so close. And then just not doing it and understanding this is the best decision you do because real estate, in my opinion, is something if you understand how to look at real estate the right way you're buying right you've been in a good location you understand equity and cash flow and you look at the numbers the right way it's not a risky investment there's always you know tax benefits you have appreciation depreciating you have cash flow if it's a cash flowing asset in a great location you will always be the winner so just wait for these kind of transactions and don't try to bend things to a what if analysis to you know, what if the market goes up by fifty thousand in one year? That would be great. But what if not? You know, if you have the money has been made when you buy, not when you sell. And this is what a lot of people forget. They're like, I buy and I make money when I sell, but it's vice versa. You to buy and buy, and that's what we always do because you lose your integrity right with equity partners. You know, real estate is a team sport. In most circumstances, you're not gonna just do the first deal yourself. You might have ask friends and family members to lend you some money for a down payment, or you need a bridge loan. Right. If the first deal you do goes sideways and lose fifty thousand dollars, well, the next one is not going to be that easy, right? So just being patient and do good deals that will keep you in the game and will allow you to scale and grow and keep staying in the game, right? In my experience, counseling somebody to be patient is one of the more difficult things that uh, uh, I, I, I have to, to kind of contend with when I'm you know, coaching executives because they're schooled and taking action. Let's move now. Let's move now. Right. In, 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 in the work that you do with, you know, I'll just talk about your staff when you're onboarding people, that sort of thing. How do you actually teach them to be patient? And I'm asking out of curiosity here because I'm looking for the, you know, the silver bullet. How do you teach them to be patient? Yeah, it's easier taught than done. You know, in fact, that's probably my biggest weakness, being patient. And <laughs> it helps me teach people to realize sometimes the same things. But it's not an easy thing to teach. I mean, obviously, the way we do it is on, on the consultation side with real estate. You know, once people are in our program, I, I always tell them, like, I got to give you the approval on, on these deals, the first ones, until you have the experience. So I always have, you know, a third-party opinion on, on some of these decisions that you're making. And I just have learned over the time to talking to people like Jeff Hoffman, you know, people that have clearly accomplished amazing things on learning the skill of patience and, and learning just understanding that you seek advice because obviously we are biased. Right? When we look at a deal, we're excited. We just want to get it done. We see the outcome. But sometimes having a neutral person. So what I always preach people is, you know, if you have something, talk to somebody who is not related to it, who is not invested in a deal, and just see what they would go. say, right? Because then you get a totally different opinion. And just listen, be unbiased, listen to them, what they have to say and take it into consideration. And if some you know, third party tells you that this sounds really good, that feedback is ultimately what you need. To, um, you know, if you, you can always convince yourself, but can you convince your wife now that this is a good decision, right? Or like your friends and family members that are going to be already skeptical with, you know, your new adventures you're trying to do. Well, if that's the case, 
that might look really good, right? And that, that might help you with patience, but hearing from other people that and it doesn't really sound so good, you know, maybe do some more research. Um, this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to be the third party, be neutral, looking at those kind of transactions, looking at these decisions that we made and, and analyzing it. And it's what I do myself. And I have a, a great idea. I always seek advice every single time. I'm like, hey, this is what I'm trying to do. These are the numbers. But here's also some of the downsides. What do you think? What is your, you know, neutral opinion on that? And it helps you stay in the game, not making these uneducated decisions or, you know, being too excited about a deal that looks good on paper, but it's a lot of the what if, you know, analysis that factors it in. Absolutely. Push yourself to the max. Contact Max Vollmer, who will help you find your best, teach you how, mentor you, and bring out the best in you. You can reach him at vollmercoaching.com and all the websites below. Max, thank you so much for all the great lessons. The comments are terrific over there. Uh, everybody has seemed to learn a lot. Please come back and join us. And say hi to Jeff Hoffman for me. I, I was just with him in Indy. Yeah, I saw it. I saw it. I will. Thank you, sir. Have a wonderful day. You got it. Thanks, man. Uh, one of my mentors as well, Jeff Hoffman, founder of Priceline, uh, spoken all over the world, Riyadh, and he runs the Global Entrepreneurship Summit and a great leader of entrepreneurs and a great entrepreneur himself. All right, last but not least, Blaine, the Double B is here. He is our cleanup hitter today, the co-founder of Evo Hemp, uh, these incredible protein bars uh, grown here the heart of hemp and hemp protein. Uh, U.S. grown hemp is a big industry. He's a Forbes 30 under 30 in the food and drink category. Welcome, Ari Sherman. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. Oh, man. I was excited to have you because uh, we were talking about integrity. And in the protein space, talk about a mismatch of mess. Uh, when <laughs> protein bars, I worked early, early on with Dr. Connolly and the original Metrex before it was sold to GNC and they dissipated the ingredients and all the other things that happen in uh, those type of industries. But um, protein has always been an area, especially in athletics, uh, to look at because it's so easy to give the facade of health with protein. Uh, and I used to use what I called the snicker bar litmus test. I, I would take the back <laughs> of a protein bar, very popular ones, by the way, and I'd match it to a Snickers bar and I'd explain how the Snicker bar was far more valuable in nutritional value uh, than most protein bars. And there's certain ingredients now uh, that have exponential nutritional uh, characteristics that are truly helpful, especially in and with protein. What are some of the things that you get by utilizing hemp uh, within the context of your extraordinary protein bar? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, hemp is a super unique protein source. Uh, it's actually one of the most bioavailable, if not the most bioavailable plant-based sources of protein. Uh, so it's a complete protein. So you get all the essential amino acids in there. But what you're also getting is a, a perfect balance of omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acids. Um, so it's really a 
hemp itself is the most nutritionally complete food source. Your body could literally survive off of eating hemp seeds and drinking water because it provides all these essential nutrients in there. Um, and what's really unique about the protein is it's the most abundant source of what's called globulin ediston protein. About 65% of it is this globulin ediston protein. Um, globulin proteins are what's found in the bloodstream. So edistins are our plant-based globulin proteins. So they're really easy for the body to digest and absorb. Um, hemp is, you know, it has all these enzymes still in it because it's not chemically processed. It's just uh, cold pressed. We essentially just take the whole hemp seeds and we crack that outer shell. Uh, we press out the oil. And from there, we just mill uh, what's left over into the protein powder. So it's all raw protein. So it keeps all those enzymes in there. Super bioavailable, easy for the body to break down and utilize those protein. It has about 98% bioavailability. Wow. 98%. 98%. That's now when you source the hemp, uh, are you sourcing just the seeds or are you sourcing the, the hemp plant itself at harvest? Uh, yeah, and we're, we're, uh, <laughs> no, definitely. We're, we're doing the, the seeds themselves. Uh, but we yeah. do help the farmers, uh, find other sources for the plant. So we do help them, you know, find buyers for the fiber and so on. Uh, yeah, we were actually the first company to be able to offer a U.S. grown source of hemp food uh, ingredients. We essentially built the very first U.S. supply chain of, of hemp food ingredients. Um, back when we started the company, actually, we had to import our seeds from Canada because it was illegal to grow hemp here in the United States at the time. Uh, so we, we worked, you know, with our, you know, local Congress and Senate and went up to Washington, D.C. and, you know, essentially lobbied the federal government and sampled the bars with them and, you know, try to educate them on the difference of the hemp plants and the other cannabis plants that are out there. Um, and, you know, us and a large group of people were successful in 2014 getting a farm bill passed, uh, allowing the states here to start growing hemp. So we essentially went back to uh, our home state in Colorado and created that very first supply chain, found some farmers, put together our own processing center and started deshelling those hemp seeds and milling them into those protein powders. I love That's entrepreneurs. Amazing. I just love entrepreneurs. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> yeah, just... no, I mean, talk about a better product, but he glossed over something. It's so funny that you said, I love entrepreneurs because, you know, my favorite statement is entrepreneurs are going to save the world. Uh, yeah. They'll fill up the hole in our environment. They'll convert plastic into food or energy or something. And that's the, we're not going to get it by just recycling. Recycling will give us the time to let people like Ari figure out the hard stuff. Uh, but to that end, you know, entrepreneurs are incredible because not only uh, facilitating this great business, this great nutritional product uh, with, you know, high efficiency, uh, in a, a necessary, you know, as far as food insecurity goes, but he's utilizing the cooperative methodology in the farming to empower communities, to fill gaps, to uh, let and empower uh, underprivileged and at-risk communities uh, provide income and employment and fulfillment and passion and profitability, as well as purpose. Uh, what are some of the things you're doing with the co-ops uh, in order to facilitate a greater good for the community. 
Yeah, so when we first started the company, um, it was one of the first things that actually got us really excited about just the hemp plant in general. I mean, not only is it good for you, it's good for the planet. It uses, you know, a fraction of the amount of water that corn, wheat, and soy does. It doesn't need any of the heavy chemical pesticides or fertilizers to grow. But also, it's a really high-value added crop for farmers. So when we were, in, like I mentioned before, we were importing our seeds from Canada at the time when we very first started, and the Canadian farmers were earning four times the amount of income per acre, literally four times the amount of income per acre growing hemp seeds than our farmers here in the States growing those traditional crops like corn, wheat, and soy. So we thought, you know, what an incredible opportunity, you know, not only for uh, our, ourselves as entrepreneurs and, and as, you know, health conscious consumers, but what a great opportunity to kind of help revitalize, you know, rural America and, you know, provide a high value crops to to farmers that are you know traditionally getting a lot of their stuff subsidized here's a crop where they can you know earn a significant amount of income it it's not uh destroying the soil it's a, a what's called the tap root so it's actually replenishing the top soil it's a great rotation crop uh so right now we work exclclusively uh with a co-op called the 40 acre co-op it's a group of black and indigenous farmers uh, across about seven different states um, really incredible group. It was the very first nationwide uh, Black and Indigenous farmer co-op, um, about 34 members right now in the group that helped grow the hemp with us. Uh, just an incredible opportunity to kind of help give back to, you know, not only rural America, but, you know, farmers that um, haven't been given the same opportunities, you know, through USDA programs and USDA grants. It's a, essentially how the co-op initially got started was a, a husband and wife team, uh, Angela Dawson and her husband, Harold Robinson, tried to get a lot of these traditional, you know, loans and grants from the USDA. They were essentially denied a lot of these loans. And it's what a lot of Black and Indigenous farmers kind of run into those issues. Um, and so they kind of, you know, pulled their resources together and created this really great nationwide co-op um, that we get to support today. You know, what I love about that story, Ari, is uh, for me, the purpose of business is to create the possibility of thriving on the planet. That's the purpose of business. And it goes beyond the product or service that I'm selling because it's, it's, it, there's a ripple that comes out. And that, that story, I'm, I, I want to have you on the soul of business and have you just kind of go through this conversation because it is exactly what compassionate capitalism can be. It is exactly what the purpose of business is all about. Now, you're making money, what you need to do to stay in business, but they are too. Everybody, it, it, it's, it's all floating out there. When you started this, you know, sourcing seeds out of Canada, was there any seed of an idea about what was possible that you are now actually in the midst of? Was any of that you know, kind of glimmering on the horizon for you? Um, yeah, I mean, we definitely saw the potential. Uh, you know, the the hemp industry in Europe and in Asia and, and in Canada was, you know, pretty far along. Um, but I don't think, you know, I don't think we really realized the scope of how quickly uh, the industry would grow. Um, mm -hmm. David mentioned earlier that, you know, we were lucky enough to be a part of the, me and my business partner, we're lucky to be a part of the Forbes 30 under 30 uh, class of 2017. 
Um, and that was kind of, you know, one of the things is that we honestly got a call from uh, one of the Forbes people and they said, you know, we almost kind of bet on on your business. You know, there was a kind of division between the, the Forbes staff of like, is hemp going to kind of turn into this big thing? And it was, you know, around 2017, 2018, when these farm bills were passed and these non-psychoactive cannabinoids like CBD products really kind of took off. Um, and it turned, you know, into a, almost a billion dollar industry within a few years. And they, the f- people at Forbes were honestly kind of blown away and surprised by uh, how quickly the industry grew. Yeah, it's always amazing to me, Ari, as we finish up that, you know, our own government sometimes works against itself because of the PACs and the self-interest and, you know, making it illegal for hemp uh, has always, to me, frustrated me about uh, our government because it's such an amazing plant uh whether it's for cloth i mean talk about uh, a gift from god and yet we made it illegal here because of self-interest and it's nice to know that uh, we may take time to figure it out but in america still the best place to live because we always have an open mind to figuring it out even when we make it or do it the wrong way uh, it's just a matter of time until we figure it out. And that's like I said, these entrepreneurs are going to save the world. We just got to give them time. Learn more about Evo Hemp and all of their products at evohemp.com. Great entrepreneur. You deserve every accolade that you receive. You and your partners, Ari Sherman, please come back on our show, but make sure you get on the solo business because you are the prime candidate to share your message about compassionate capitalism and the soul of business. Come join us again. Thank you, my friend. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ari. I'll have Raluca reach out to you. We'll exchange email addresses here. That would be great. Appreciate you guys. Great job. All right. It comes that time. We're on office hours on Thankful Thursday. And I named it Thankful Thursday because I'm so thankful for the double B, Blaine Bartlett, BlaineBartlett.com. What's your takeaway for the day? Takeaway for the day is exactly what we were just talking about with uh, with Ari. The purpose of business is to enhance the possibility of thriving on the planet. Every one of our guests, is, uh, you know, they're doing that in some way, shape, or form. That's why these people show up on this show, because th- th- this is who they are. And you know, we, when you and I started out with this, uh, this particular show, um, you know, Office Hours, The Soul of Business Edition, uh, that's what we initially titled the Thursday, the Thursday show. We're 500 plus episodes now. And the guests that we've had here have all been organized around enhancing the possibility of thriving on the planet. Business does this well. Life changes in a very magical way. So that's my takeaway. I'm just, I'm just thrilled to be a part of 500 plus episodes. And 3,500 plus guests, uh, yeah. all of different nature. And uh, for me, my takeaway is there's many ways to win. Um, and the only way we can guarantee the win is to ask for help and how important mentorship is uh, in all four of uh, the businesses. Being a mentor and mentoring at all times is a critical component to winning. So if you want to win, get a mentor, be a mentor. Have this in mind, the great logo of reaching up to people like Blaine Bartlett and reaching down to people like Dave Meltzer to help me. It works for me and it works for us. Win with this iconic position, this iconic logo. Uh, Ask for help and give help. It's that simple. Surround yourself with the right people and the right ideas. Let's all build here at Office Hours, a community of people. 
that want to help each other and know people that can help each other. Let's all reach out. Blaine Bartlett, thank you for changing the world and giving us time to change the world as well. BlaineBartlett.com. I'll see you next Thankful Thursday. What do you say, brother? You got it. I'll be there with bells on my toes. And you tell your wife I will give her a call tonight. I got lots of things going on personally. So uh, she's first on my list. Hey, I'm going to be in town next week. Let's see if we can get perfect. Catch me before I leave to London, Scotland. Uh, Sorry, London, Israel, Scotland, London, and then New York. So catch me before I leave on the first. You leave on the first. Good. I'm going to be there before that. I'm there on the 30th, I think. So great. Well, perfect. We got our date. We did it publicly here on Office Hours. Thank you, man. Take care. Talk to you later. When you're so active, sometimes you got to use your shows uh, to communicate with your best friends. And so thank you for your patience and allowing me to use Office Hours just like a phone call to Blaine. That's awesome. We set a date at the end here on. May 30th, the last day of May. Uh, If anybody needs any help, you know where to reach me. I will give you any exercises, guys, my portal, my search engine, especially my book. I'm happy to sign it, send it to you, pay for shipping and the book. All you got to do is email me, david at dmelter.com. If it's free, it's we. Email me, david at dmelter.com. Most importantly, everyone, this show's about being more interested than interesting. Be kind to your future self and do good deeds. We'll see you tomorrow at training, 6 a.m. Reach out, 6 a.m. Pacific time. Thank you.